Mr. Cheney, are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, Michael Richard Pence. I, Spiro Theodore Agnew. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. Welcome to the 16th and final episode of Running Mates. As always, I'm your host, Lars Emerson, and I am joined by my co-host, Mike Levito. Hello! I'm being loud because I'm shouting at you from across the country. (laughs) That's right. Mike's in New Jersey, and I'm all the way out here in Colorado. This is the podcast where we look at every presidential election through the lens of their vice presidential picks, and we talk about who they should have chosen instead. This is our last episode, and it's a very special episode brought to you in the heat of the 2020 presidential election. Because we obviously don't know yet uh, who won, we're going to tackle this in a slightly different format. We're still going to pick our running mates for the candidates, but we'll be acting on the same knowledge as the campaigns kind of going into the election. We have no idea what the result is going to be. We can only hope that our picks are the right ones. So let's dive in, Mike. All right, let's do it. Well, it may be almost redundant because we're currently living it, but let's set the scene anyway for those of us going into 2020. So incumbent President Donald Trump and his government, Trifecta, elected in 2016, wherein Republicans had control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, managed to secure actually very few policy priorities in their short two years together, though they did pass a semi-major tax reform in 2017 when the economy was very hot, against the advice of all economists. Yes. Yeah. Trump has also withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement and the Iran deal, two of the Obama administration's key foreign policy successes. And he's nominated and seen confirmed two justices to the Supreme Court, one far more controversial than the last. Other than that, there's not actually a lot to point to as a policy, you know, win. However, there are many, many policy controversies with this administration. Kind of right off the bat, there was a Muslim ban and there was an escalating trade war with China and then very tense relations with longtime U.S. allies. There was the firing of FBI director James Comey. There were conflicts of interest with his own ongoing business interests. There was then commenting that there were, quote, good people on both sides of a white supremacist protest and counter protest. There was the devastation of Puerto Rico with little administration help following Hurricane Maria, high levels of cabinet turnover, family separation policy for immigrants, and three different government shutdowns, all of which, fun fact, started when the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress and the White House, and one of which was actually the longest shutdown in history. So using that whole non-divided government thing, not very well. That That is remarkable. <laughs> like, oh, and there's the one that just Rand Paul was just kind of caused because he wanted yeah. to talk for 20 more minutes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just a very weird, almost dysfunctional government at times here. Yeah. And Trump has held consistently low yet stable approval ratings throughout his term. He never really broke you know, 50% or dropped below 35% approval. So there's not a ton of love for the guy. But hey, at least the economy was doing well, right? Well. (laughs) Well, in 2018, Democrats retake the House of Representatives. They elect the most diverse Congress in American history, and Nancy Pelosi reclaims the gavel as Speaker of the House. Investigations into Russian interference in the 2016 election and collusion with the Trump campaign are ongoing, with special counsel Robert Mueller conducting a two-year investigation and ultimately concluding in 2019 that there was no conspiracy or collusion. 
but that there was obstruction of justice by the administration, though Mueller ultimately leaves the charge up to Congress since standing Justice Department guidelines say that the sitting president is immune to prosecution. Only Congress may impeach the president. It's worth noting, of course, that many individuals tied to the campaign were prosecuted and found guilty in this and related cases, including his national security advisor, Michael Flynn, his campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, campaign advisor, George Papadopoulos, advisor, Roger Stone, and fellow AU alums, just like Mike and I, Maria Butina, and Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. Go Eagles! Once an eagle, always an eagle. Wonks yeah. make the news every five minutes or whatever. We're, uh, you know, with all those in like Jordan Belfort, we're in pretty good company, Mike. <laughs> Don't forget Corey Lewandowski. <laughs> Let's just try not to get into any trouble in our lifetime. Yeah. We're good boys. It's not going to happen. We are. Well, and then in 2019, the House of Representatives launched an impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump that ultimately results in his impeachment by the House and acquittal in the Senate, though not without the first ever U.S. senator voting to convict the president of his own party, that being a name from episodes past, now the Republican senator from Utah, Mitt Romney. This Mitt is- Romney, I think, probably more popular now with Democrats than he ever was with Republicans. <laughs> oh, for sure. So, I mean, so is George W. Bush like, I'm- <laughs> and John yeah. Kasich, you know? This impeachment was brought on after it was discovered that Trump had withheld military aid from Ukraine in order to coerce Ukraine to investigate Donald Trump's self-perceived biggest threat, Democratic presidential candidate and former vice president Joe Biden. But keep in mind, all of this actually happened before the Democratic primary had even started yet, which is a great transition into what's going on in the Democratic primary this year, as well as what's going on with the world right now. All right. On the Democratic side. Well, as everyone expected it would, the Democratic field balloons to the largest field of primary candidates in the modern era, as the party lacks kind of clear guidance or sense of direction at all after Trump's surprising election, other than an all-encompassing unity to defeat Trump. There was a clear split between the centrist kind of Clinton-Obama wing of the party and the progressive Sanders wing of the party, and over 20 candidates entered the race. Among them are I feel like you doing the 2016 and 2012 Republicans, (laughs) Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, hedge fund manager Tom Steyer, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, former representative from Maryland John Delaney, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, author Marianne Williamson, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro, California Senator Kamala Harris, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke, Ohio Representative Tim Ryan, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, Senator from New York Kirsten Gillibrand, Governor of Washington Jay Inslee, former Governor of Colorado John Hickenlooper, California Representative Eric Swalwell, Massachusetts Representative Seth Moulton, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and then the two heaviest hitters, Vermont Senator and 2016 runner-up Bernie Sanders, and former Vice President and former running mate himself, Joe Biden. But wait, there's more. Because this race was so splintered, even after debates throughout 2019, the frontrunners, Biden and Sanders, were perceived as kind of weak candidates. Biden, people felt, was too bumbling, out of touch, and incoherent in debates, and Sanders was too left-wing, perhaps dooming the party in the general election. So two more candidates then into the race in November, only a couple months out from the Iowa caucuses, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and former Governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick. Bloomberg dumps nearly $1 billion into his own candidacy, which is more than the next eight highest spending candidates combined. Is that nuts? It's good to invent a terminal. 
it's like i invented a terminal years from now people are gonna be like what the hell is that <laughs> like, an air, like an airport bloomberg's late entry into the race left him ineligible to be on the ballot in a couple of early states and only 11 candidates remain standing going into the iowa caucuses biden sanders gabbard warren bloomberg klobuchar Buttigieg, steyer patrick bennett and yang the Iowa caucuses, however, turn out to be a complete shit show with massive delays, a poorly designed app for the purpose of reporting the final tallies, phone call backlogs to the state vote reporting line, and ultimately, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg wins Iowa, the first ever gay man to win a presidential contest, with Sanders in second, followed by Warren, then Biden in fourth. The next week in New Hampshire, Sanders wins, followed by Buttigieg, and with Klobuchar coming in third place, Warren came in fourth and Biden just in fifth with neither Warren nor Biden receiving the 15% of the vote necessary to be awarded delegates. Remember that the Democratic Party requires 15% of the vote to be eligible for delegates in every state contest, and then awards delegates proportionally from there. So there is no you know, winner-take-all like in the Republican primary. A couple weeks later, Democratic gang, sans Patrick, Bennett, and Yang, who have all dropped out, march on to the Nevada caucuses, the first real test of how the candidates will play in a state that isn't just white people. Nevada, you know, being a very diverse state demographically. Sanders actually easily carries Nevada, though Biden does manage to get second place, with Buttigieg just barely behind him. The Nevada victory makes Sanders the ostensible frontrunner, as Biden has failed to win a single state so far, and Buttigieg's coalition is slipping, while Warren and Klobuchar aren't gaining very much traction as time goes on. However, Biden has planned a firewall all along. The South. More specifically, the South Carolina primary, where Biden's longstanding ties with African-American voters are his planned bulwark against the Sanders campaign. This is a very risky strategy, or at least it was perceived. I thought it was very risky at the time. Uh, I thought Biden was gone and out. I, uh, I, yeah, after Nevada, I was like, it's over. It's, yeah. it's going to be Sanders. Yeah. And what do you know? It actually worked, though. Biden carries almost 50 percent of the state and almost three quarters of the delegates with Sanders in second. No other candidate qualifies for delegates, and Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and Steyer all drop out. Klobuchar and Buttigieg, the two other kind of moderates in the race left, give big endorsements to Biden on the eve of Super Tuesday, attempting to clear out and free the centrist lane for Biden to stop a Sanders nomination. Remember, the primary focus of the party and its voters, who were polled at the time, was defeating Donald Trump. And voters and a lot of political science evidence kind of points to the fact that a more moderate, inoffensive candidate will have a better shot at doing so. The McGovern signal, as we like to call it. <laughs> Keep in mind, though, that Bloomberg hasn't actually been competing yet, as he's focused all of his energy and money on Super Tuesday states, since he's been largely ineligible for entering too late for those first four races. And he's dumped a billion dollars into these Super Tuesday states, so no one really knows how this is going to look. Could Bloomberg really pull it off and upset Biden and Sanders? No. As it turns out, no. You know, there's a lot of evidence that campaign spending at the federal level has actually a very limited effect. And I think Bloomberg's billion dollar candidacy is a good testament to that. Biden still does very well in southern and midwestern states on Super Tuesday, while Sanders holds on in western states. But after Super Tuesday, Biden becomes the clear front runner and Bloomberg and Warren both drop out. Bloomberg endorses Biden right away. Warren would do so about a month later. And finally, all the cards start crashing down towards a Biden nomination. Most of the other former candidates like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Andrew Yang have endorsed Biden at this point, but the primary is not yet over. Or so we thought. Two days after Super Tuesday, a national emergency is declared due to the coronavirus pandemic that is rearing its ugly head towards America in mid-March. The country comes to a standstill. 
Cities and states start imposing stay-at-home orders. Workers are sent home, where many of us still remain six months later. Hospitals become overburdened, and an eerie sense of still just kind of hangs over the country in March and April. Many primaries are rescheduled, and there is one final debate held between Sanders and Biden, a kind of solemn affair with social distancing. It read, I don't know, at least to me, I think you watched it with me, right, Mike? It, it just kind of read like an acknowledgement that Biden was the presumptive nominee with Sanders just sort of like pushing Biden on the issues. But Sanders seemed like very aware of the fact that, you know, with the primaries postponed and like a global health crisis, unlike anything we've seen in a century, bearing down on America with a White House that was not giving any clear leadership, that it was kind of time to pack it in, that the stakes were too high. Yeah, it really seemed like they just wanted to get it over with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and they both seemed like pretty amenable to that. Yeah. And in early April, Sanders suspends his campaign and ultimately endorses Biden, with former President Barack Obama following a day later, and Biden becomes the Democratic Party's presumptive nominee. After a very convoluted path to the nomination, he's only the second candidate in modern history to win their party's nomination despite losing both the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primaries. Bill Clinton is the other one, though I do want to note that Biden got fourth and fifth place in the first two contests, whereas Clinton, and every other candidate for that matter, simply ignored Iowa in 1992 because of Iowa Senator Tom Harkin's candidacy. And then at least Clinton got second in New Hampshire. Like Biden, <laughs> yeah. Biden got fifth place in New Hampshire. I It'll be so fascinating. Like there's going to be a moment 50 years from now when some historian or journalist or something is like, I want to write a book on the 2020 election. And they're going to go through just like news from like the 2020 Democratic cycle. They're going to be like, what? Like, how the hell did Biden win? Yeah. They're going to be like so confused about like all the twists and turns it took. Like, it's going to be like this really fascinating thing to look back on and just how much stuff happened between like January and March, basically. Yeah. And we put so much emphasis, you know, on like Iowa and New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just so funny that Biden did so poorly and he's like, no, I'm going to do well in South Carolina. And it worked. He just like yeah. hung on there. It's like, I wonder how many people start trying, you know, something like that. It's like, yeah, I don't appeal to white working class voters. So I'm just going to wait. Well, that, that I remember what, like during the primaries, you said that you were like, what if Biden just like did not run in Iowa, New Hampshire? Yeah. And there's also, by the way, like a non-zero chance that we just don't never do the Iowa caucuses again. <laughs> like, yeah, that's really... like a very real <laughs> um, thing that could come out of this primary. But yeah. Yeah, the caucuses in general, especially, yeah, this year's Iowa caucus did not go well. No. But yeah, at the end of the day, despite a field of initially 29 candidates in this election, only four candidates actually won a single contest. Those being Biden, Sanders, Bloomberg, who did win the American Samoan primary on Super Tuesday, and then Buttigieg, who of course only won Iowa. So Biden, now the presumptive nominee, faces a nation still locked down because of the coronavirus, cases and deaths piling up. And he kind of has this heavy burden on his shoulders as he prepares to face down President Trump in the fall. Yeah. So talking about Trump and the Republican side of this election, on some levels, not nearly as exciting. On some levels, very interesting on its own right. So despite being very popular within his own party, Trump would actually face three primary challengers. They were former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh, and former South Carolina Governor and Congressman Mark Sanford. Weld ran as the Libertarian vice presidential nominee in 2016, and he just like never liked Trump. He was like an old school Republican who I don't think had held office since the 90s. And he said that Trump showed contempt for the American people. He attacked him over his lack of action on climate change, coming from like, you know, the moderate part of the party. Joe Walsh, on the other hand, was a huge Trump fan in 2016. He had a history, in fact, of making anti-Muslim remarks and was actually kicked off of a radio show for using racial slurs. 
And it was a very, very active on Twitter in the 2016 election where he made statements that were interpreted by some as advocating violence against Black Lives Matter protesters and Barack Obama. He loved Trump so much that he tweeted out on November 8th, I'm voting for Trump. On November 9th, if Trump loses, I'm grabbing my musket. You in? Well, who talks, Which, who says know, musket these days? I, Just say gun <laughs> like everyone does. else. Yeah. You know, he's, 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 a, he's a Tea Party guy, man. It's all about the founders and the spirit of 76. But he would do a complete 180 on Trump when it was revealed that it was the Russians to help him win the election and basically just started to decide that Trump was a traitor to the United States. He lamented how he, in his own words, helped create Trump and, you know, kind of the environment he contributed to. Mark Sanford uh, was perhaps most famous for being busted for cheating on his wife while governor of South Carolina and lying about hiking the Appalachian Trail while he was doing it. He was, in fact, in Argentina visiting his mistress. <laughs> He had endorsed Trump in 2016, but criticized him while he while he was in office, specifically regarding the Muslim travel ban, actually, and also urged Congress to request Trump's tax records. Sanford ended up losing the 2018 primary for his congressional seat to a Trump loyalist named Katie Arrington, who, by the way, as a Republican, would lose that congressional race, which was taking place in an R plus 10 district. So, you know, kind of an upset there. And Sanford ended up launching a presidential campaign to bring attention to what he saw as Trump's reckless fiscal decisions. He was very much like a deficit hawk, and he thought that the Republicans had lost their way on the issue. He would drop out, though, before the primaries, and Weldon Walsh won just 1% respectively in the Iowa caucuses, which was actually good enough for Weld to win one delegate, but it did lead Walsh to drop out. Weld held out for a little bit longer, but dropped out in March after Trump secured enough delegates to be renominated. This, of course, did not come without controversy as a number of primaries and caucuses were canceled, presumably to protect Trump from a challenge. To be uh, fair, that does usually happen to some degree. It does. It was just a little more conspicuous this year because people thought that if anybody was going to get challenged, it was probably going to be Donald Trump. Right. He did actually have challengers or serious challengers. Yeah. I mean, he actually, you know, Weld won a delegate. Right you now. Weld, speaking of, would actually end up endorsing Biden, as did one time Trump superfan Joe Walsh, who even went as far to say before Biden won the nomination that he, like a Tea Party guy, very conservative, would rather have a socialist in the White House than Donald Trump. Basically said he would vote for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, he also called the Republican Party a cult and said that the president supporters don't know what the truth is. And more importantly, they don't care. Oof. It, it is fascinating, right? Like, well, so a little bit of a tangent here that's a little off subject, but it, it is so interesting for how divisive Trump is. I, I mean, like there are clearly like John Kasich, Mitt Romney, you know, you could probably argue Larry Hogan. So I mean, some of them have publicly said, we don't like this guy. It's so weird that there was not a more serious challenge, right? It is. Yeah, I, I, I think so. But I think that's almost what makes the Joe Walsh thing more interesting to me. I think it's weird to have a guy like Trump who comes from like a completely different ideological makeup of a lot of Republicans. It's weird to have them just kind of fall in line behind a guy like that. Like you look historically and it's like there were fights between the moderates and the conservatives basically throughout the, the 50s, really, until the 80s and the conservatives took over. But then, you know, Pat Buchanan didn't think Bush was conservative enough, so he ran against him. And you kind of have this thing constantly between like the progressives and like the centrist liberals and the Democratic Party. It is weird. And I think I think part of it is just that I don't know that Republicans felt safe yet. And I don't know that they really did feel safe coming out against Trump, probably until the Democratic National Convention. I think a lot of them may have been waiting for Biden to get the nomination. I don't think they wanted to put themselves in the position of possibly helping like Sanders win the presidency. I'm just speculating there. 
once again, a little off topic, do you think if coronavirus had happened earlier, like if it happened in like November or December and the economy went into a deep recession then, do you think you would have seen someone like Mitt Romney, John Kasich, like actually step up to the plate? Yeah, it, it possibly, yes. I also think that if the George Floyd protests happened earlier, you would too. Because I think you look at the polling, that's one thing that nobody trusts Trump on, even <laughs> Republicans. And I think that that they would have to be something like that to get a uh, and because that also opens up like the Romney lane, like Romney was at Black Lives Matter protests, like right. and he, he, he could easily parlay that into a challenge. So, yeah, it, it, they would have more opportunity. But I think you're right. Yeah, it's at this point, you know, people don't like Trump. He's he's done a lot of shady stuff. But at the same time, the economy's in pretty good shape. There's no national crises going on yet. And so I think that that's part of what makes it harder for a challenger to, to kind of shoot up. Gotcha. All right. So we got Biden. We got Trump. We're finally here. Let's talk reality. (laughs) Who did they choose as their running mates? Well, during the final Democratic presidential debate, the one with just Sanders and Biden, Biden made a definitive pledge on the air that his running mate would be a woman. This was always kind of somewhat assumed, but his assertion got speculation flying. You know, cut out half the population. Yeah. Probably cut out like 80% of the population if we're talking American politics. Yeah. And I, I think it did some service towards making him appear as the presumptive nominee, whereas oh, like yeah. Sanders didn't say that. So Biden was like, yeah, I'm already planning ahead. I'm already there. And so that summer, what with everyone, including Michael and myself, stuck at home, there was just so much speculation. I don't know. We talked about it probably every day. We wrote a ton of articles about the process. We compared, you know, Biden's kind of potential VP choices. You know, we had our vice presidential tracker going. We we even recorded episodes of a podcast about (laughs) vice presidents. Yes, yeah. (laughs) It's Um, almost as if we knew an election was happening. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Come July and August, a short list of around 13 candidates emerged with a top tier of four. Former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and California Senator Kamala Harris. A thing we haven't really talked about yet in this episode, but also kind of lends a lot of context to what's going on now, is the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in late May, during which Floyd, an unarmed black man, died as a result of a white police officer kneeling on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, while several other officers stood by and as Floyd pled that he could not breathe. Floyd died over the arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit bill, and the entire nation, a month and a half into the coronavirus lockdowns, just kind of erupts, and the tension is palpable. Michael and I, we were living in D.C. at the time, and those first few nights of the protests, they were just genuinely something. Police cars, you know, flying down our streets, there were curfews in the city, there were armored vehicles just like pouring into the town. There were 62,000 National Guard personnel activated for D.C. alone. You know, you could see cars set on fire. There were reporters bashed by U.S. soldiers. There were soldiers lined up on 16th Street, creating a line around the White House. Soldiers fired bullets and tear gas at protesters around the White House so that President Trump could then take a photo holding a Bible at a church that had been vandalized. It was just a very surreal week. It was just the the weirdest images and most powerful images coming out of it. And just like, you're just that like massive line of like bicycle cops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would just every day would go down Wisconsin Avenue just like during the day. It was it, it was unlike anything I had ever seen before, put it simply. Yeah. If you haven't like seen the images, you should definitely look it up. It's very yeah. like stunning. It's like somewhat chilling. And I, I don't know, it felt to me just kind of like the climax definitely of the year um, and kind of of the Trump administration in general. It was just like this is everything coming back on him. Yeah. People had like a reason now to they, they had always had a reason to be upset, obviously. 
But it's like, I think that they now had like a symbol to mm. rally around. And, you know, people, I, I think for all like the corrupt stuff Trump got away with and his just general poor decision making, I think that it was hard to sort of be like, we do not like Trump because of X. Or if it was like, we don't like him because he's racist. But it was hard to point to a very concrete, specific example of being racist. Granted, George Floyd had nothing to do with Donald Trump. But I do think it did kind of lead to this thing of this is what we've allowed to become permissible in the United States. And it mm. is partly this guy's fault. And I, it, it created something for somebody, people to rally around. Well, anyway. And I think and after an incoherent, frankly, like weak response to the coronavirus crisis, I, I think people were restless. And I just think everything just kind of, yeah, fell back on him. Yeah, it, it was the dream deferred exploding in, in many ways. Yeah. Over 14,000 people were arrested in connection with the protests nationally, and the spotlight on racial justice, the Black Lives Matter movement, and historical racism in America was relentless. To bring it back to our show and our subject matter, this kind of put a lot of pressure on Biden to look at and choose a woman of color for his presidential running mate. And it put a lot of attention on former police chiefs and prosecutors, many of whom may have been on that shortlist. Ultimately, after kicking the can repeatedly on a decision, Biden chooses California Senator Kamala Harris, who had run against him in the Democratic primary, but never made it to the actual contest. Harris, a former attorney general of California and now senator from California since 2017, had gone after Biden pretty fiercely in the first Democratic presidential debate back in June 2019 for his willingness to work with senators who were against busing and integration of the races. Still just a first-term senator, Harris was known for making waves on the Senate Judiciary Committee, taking a tough line during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing and in oversight hearings on Attorney General Barr. Harris is the first African-American, first Indian-American, second person of color, and only the third woman to be selected as a running mate by a major party. Mike, can you tell us who that first person of color was? Yes. Was it not Charles Curtis? It was. Herbert Hoover's vice president. Who was Native American. Yes. Not to be confused with Charles G. Dawes, who I believe was Calvin Coolidge's vice president. There's a fun history fact for our listeners. Yes. She's also the first ever candidate on a Democratic Party presidential ticket from the West. This is a party that has existed for 192 years. And sure, like I'll concede, the West didn't exist for like the first 40 of those years. But this is a big deal. And I feel like not enough people, you know, are talking about it. You know, we think of the West Coast, like it's obviously a very like democratic place. But, you know, having never had a VP or president, even as a nominee, like from California or Washington or Oregon, just, you know, I don't know, kind of baffles me. It is pretty crazy. That's wild to think about. Harris, I will say, was kind of always the most obvious front runner for the job if Biden won the nomination. You know, our VP tracker kind of said as much for basically eight months up into that time. And as far back as early 2019, people were kind of saying that. So I wouldn't say this choice was very surprising, even if it is very historic. I kind of think The Economist put it very well. They said approvingly of her selection back in August, quote, for all the anxiety about racism in America at the moment, Ms. Harris feels in many ways like a safe, unremarkable choice for vice president. That is a sign of progress, end quote. That's kind of how I feel, too, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, the primary kind of felt like that, too, where it was like it was a very diverse primary, but that was never it came up, but that was not the focus. Where I was like, when Obama was running, it was like, oh, my God, there's a black guy who could possibly be president. Like, that yeah. was the story. Yeah. All right. Biden gets Harris. What's going on with Trump? Well, he keeps Mike Pence, the vice president, but not without some controversy slash intrigue. 
So John Bolton, former National Security Advisor Donald Trump, claims in his book, The Room Where It Happened, that Trump asked him if he should replace Pence with former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley on the ticket. But Bolton, who liked Pence and kind of viewed him as one of the same people in the Trump administration and as an ally, told him to stand pat and, and keep with Pence because he was loyal. And Trump agreed. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem was rumored to be angling to replace Pence after Trump's 2020 Fourth of July speech at Mount Rushmore. She rode back to D.C. with him on Air Force One, in fact. But nothing came of that either. Other people like Florida Senator Marco Rubio and New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik were mentioned as possibilities by columnists. Basically, the idea was that Trump had to pick somebody other than a white guy because Biden most certainly was going to. And Trump was already bad with non-white guys. Um, <laughs> ideally, he was going to pick some kind of woman who swung very Democratic in the 2018 midterms to counter what was likely going to be a woman of color on the Democratic ticket. But he stood by his guy, Mike Pence. Woo! <laughs> Who, by the way, I don't know if we mentioned, became the chair of the White House's coronavirus task force. Started giving daily briefings about the disease and the response. <laughs> Trump would, would, would always crash and make about his response. Exactly. And invite like the MyPillow guy to. to give it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah. Well, now you're basically all caught up with the present, everyone. As discussed, we have no idea what the result is going to be. But the general election so far has been kind of weird. Conventions were very different spectacles, with Trump accepting the nomination from a non-socially distanced Trump sign-emblazoned White House lawn and making himself kind of the center of every night. He he crashed the Republican convention every single night. Like, it was not on the schedule they published, but he always showed up. Uh, Did he Democrat speak every night, too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love just riffing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got a lot to say. The Democratic convention a week earlier was more kind of party-inclusive and representative of the more diverse Democratic Party. With a big name on this show, former Ohio Republican Governor John Kasich making an appearance and endorsing Biden. All right. I wrote Trump an article about this, by the way. You should look it up on thepostwriter.com. That's right. Trump and Biden have both started to hit the trail the last couple of weeks. One a bit more, you know, this is the worst public health crisis we've faced in a century, conscious than the other. And we're coming up on their first debate here in, in the next week or so. But more to our subject matter, how do we feel about the vice presidential debate that's going to happen on October 7th between Harris and Pence, Mike? I think that it is a good opportunity for Kamala Harris, who I think, to be honest, I think Kamala Harris in many ways, is probably like one of the bigger name running mates in a while. I mean, obviously, because she ran the primary and I think she had like a decent sized base and like a, a very like recognizable brand before she was put on the ticket, which I don't think you could necessarily say for like a Mike Pence or a Tim Kaine or even Joe Biden back when he was still a senator. I think she and I think it gives her an opportunity to build on that. If she comes out as like Kavanaugh here in Kamala Harris, I think that she'll look well. If she comes out as Democratic primary debate Kamala Harris, uh, she's not going to do quite as well, is, is, is my take. Yeah, I kind of agree. You know, a lot of people, and we talked about this in our 2016 episode, like the Pence debate, they kind of thought Pence won just because Kane was like whiny, always interrupting him. Do you think, I, I don't want to make judgments about Mike Pence, but do you <laughs> think having to debate like a, a, a powerful African-American woman, uh, how do you think Pence does? I, I really don't know. I, I, I think that he, I just think it's going to be very easy for Kamala to like pile on on him and make him the face of the many failures of the Trump administration. And compared to her, almost either way, he's just going to come off as like way less effective. And I, I just don't see a way that he doesn't just kind of try and like beat the drum of Antifa mobs are going to invade the suburbs. 
and we're going to have a vaccine by October. I just I just don't know what what he goes after. And, you know, maybe 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 he is just becomes like uncomfortable. Like <laughs> I think that's that's a very real possibility. And if, if he leans too much of one way, if when they're talking about racial relations, like I think he could come off really bad. Mm. What I'm trying to say is there's there's Kamala Harris is more star power than Mike Pence. Or yeah. they feel like Mike Pence and Tim Kaine are more equal footing. And Kane was very much they, they very much send out Kane to like be the bulldog. I think Kamala Harris is a more effective bulldog than Tim Kaine was. And it's just going to be harder, I think, for Pence to get his shots in. Yeah. But I, I also think Kamala Harris, you know, like I said, during the primary debate, did not always, you know, against more experienced debaters, I guess. She never she didn't come off quite as well. So who knows, man? I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to hedge a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to sound overconfident. Well, here's here's a question you're welcome to hedge on as well. Do you think the vice presidential debate matters at all? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I, think, I, I kind of agree. I think by this point, people have made up their minds. You know, if if Lloyd Benson just ethering Dan Quayle in 1988 <laughs> didn't work, then what is? Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Let's get to the main part of the show. Mike, you were asked to come to the table with five alternative picks for Biden's running mate, and since Trump is the incumbent, we will do just two for him, like we usually do. Uh, we'll start with the Democratic ticket. Just a reminder before we dive in here. So Biden did say that his running mate would be a woman. But because by the rules of our show, we only have a say over Biden's choices, we don't necessarily have to follow that. However, if a candidate has declined to be in the running, like my beloved Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, who I was rooting for very hard and would absolutely be my number one pick on the show. There, (laughs) she got my shout out. We can't do anything about that. So let's dive in. I'll kick us off with our Democratic ticket. My number five pick, I went with Janet Napolitano. Statistically speaking, I think the former Homeland Security Secretary and former governor of Arizona is a very strong pick for Biden. She has just enough years at the federal level in a major department to be competent. She was governor of a pretty big swing state, especially this year, but she isn't up for re-election and you stand nothing to lose in terms of losing like a seat as opposed to if you chose a senator in a swing state. Our own vice presidential tracker shot her straight up to the top of the rings for Biden. She's actually just below Harris to this day. And it's hard to go kind of against my own algorithm on that one. And I think just generally, there's a lot to like. She was called one of the greatest governors of America when she was governor. She was reelected in what was a pretty red state still in the 2000s by a two to one margin in 2006. She was a central leader in the federal response to the H1N1 flu, kind of you know, a big pandemic that we remember in our lifetimes. And she successfully mitigated damage that the flu could have caused as Homeland Security Secretary. She was also kind of ahead of the curve on right-wing extremism, even if that landed her in some trouble. And she was accused of discrimination against men while she was in charge of DHS, which is just kind of awesome. Like, I love that. It's like, they were like, you're biased (laughs) against men. They're like, cool. (laughs) Um, And she's a big name behind DACA and comprehensive immigration reform. I I know something about her seems a little odd when you like hear the name as a vice presidential pick this year, but the more I like think about it and look just at the raw data, the more I liked it. I just think she's sort of unexciting. Yeah. So I I came in very skeptical about Janet Napolitano. You've made your case though. Like the, I I do think she could be the face of DACA, right? Right. Um, Especially because as we'll talk about, Biden has some trouble with Latinos. And I think that you know, obviously she was elected governor of a Latino heavy state. She, she's done a lot for immigration reform and for DACA. So I think that helps her a lot. And like you said, I think the right right wing extremism thing. Yeah, like it got her in like a little trouble then. But, you know, I think it's maybe become a bit more relevant now. 
Mm. And that that'll also appeal to a certain segment of the population. So when when the VP speculation was going around, you and I both agreed that Susan Rice did not seem like a very good pick. Right. Yeah, more or less. I guess when I think of Janet Napolitano, I I would not go for the same reasons. I go with like Susan Rice, maybe, or she seems maybe a little too wonky and a little too. It it just feels like a third Obama term argument. And you know how I feel about double administration picks. I'm about to break that rule in this episode, but yeah, I I don't know. I I guess I just worry that it's it's clinging on to the Obama legacy a little bit too much. And also, like, you know, she ended up being president of the University of California and you really have like the smoothest of tenures. You know, there were some like issues with like the budget practices. Um, Who cares? <laughs> and, you know, maybe she just becomes like, it's like, oh, Jim Napolitano, president of the University of California, all those extremist liberal <laughs> colleges in California, okay. like Berkeley. Oh, maybe that hurts her a little bit. So on your Susan Rice thing. Yes, I agree. I don't think Susan Rice is a very strong option for Biden. The difference between Susan Rice and Janet Napolitano, like there are two. Napolitano is from a big swing state, Arizona. True. Susan Rice is from DC. She has Maine ties, but she's like a DC person. The second difference is Janet Napolitano has been elected to office. She was an office holder. She was governor. She was a governor who was reelected by a two to one margin. I think that makes a huge difference. That's part of the reason that I mean, our algorithms in our vice presidential tracker set Rice back, but shoot Napolitano up. It's just the competitive state, the fact that she has state experience, which complements Biden very well, is Susan Rice and Biden are both govies. They're both D.C. people. They've been in D.C. for a long time. Napolitano was only in D.C. for a few years. That that definitely makes sense, yeah. It's not like a terrible pick. I also do wonder a little bit about age. You know, she is closer to Biden in age than a lot of potential choices and I, I do think that the Democrats are pushing a bit for youth this yeah. this cycle. You know, 62. And there's just part of me that wonders, like, you know, not that you need someone everybody knows, but like how many people remember who like Janet Napolitano was. I had an eye opening conversation with some 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 folks in my hometown the other week. And it's like most of them could not name who like Obama ran against. <laughs> and so are wow. these same people going to know who, you know, what Obama's first secretary of homeland security was i don't know i don't know i i think her record on h1n1 is also very useful this year i think that's just a nice thing i discovered when i was thinking about her i was like oh okay it's that true, seems yeah, like no. a good issue yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, her agendas were almost like it was almost like prescient in a lot of yes. ways yes it's not a terrible pick but it's not one i not one i thought of and probably not one i would maybe she'd be in my top like 15 but okay my number five is my senator cory booker senator from new jersey and don't know if you know this but former mayor of nork um, i've heard him mention that once or twice yeah you know when 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 he was and when he was mayor of nork he he was kind of an insurgent he was the fresh new voice breaking up a corrupt party machine nork's still not in great shape but he did reduce crime he did make inroads on affordable housing and you know he's he's kind of trying to carry on the obama legacy in congress very over eager maybe to be president but you know i think he is like a very much a big tent democrat he just kind of wants everybody to get along he is a prominent african-american which as we talked about definitely helps biden especially given the uh the social climate and conversation around race everybody's been having and as you note, was not a prosecutor or a police officer, unlike, say, Val Demings or Kamala Harris, who were considered by Biden, one eventually chosen, of course. Yeah, he, he's just a big tank guy. He's gregarious and he's very much a politician, but 
he's pretty inoffensive yeah. and I think speaks to maybe sections of the suburban voter who voted for Obama, then maybe switched back to Trump, but then who is maybe like curving back towards the Dems in 2018. And now I, I think I think he actually would probably do well amongst that cohort. Yeah, I have Booker actually as my number four pick for, yeah, basically a lot of the same reason. I, I don't know if it's naive or if it's just so 12 years ago to pitch this version of America that can fix itself with like compassion and love in sort of a semi-progressive, semi-establishment way like Obama did. I, I don't know if there's room for that now. People seem pretty divisive, but like during the primary, I thought it was very nice to hear. It, it kind of reminds me actually a lot of the Clinton 2016 campaign too. It's just like he was pitching this like, I don't care if you're a millionaire. I don't care if you're a billionaire. I don't care if you believe this, this or this. We have to just come together as one country. He's not really out to get anyone, right? It's just like the sense that we can get through it if we all work together. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this is too naive. Um, Maybe, but but I do think a big, again, more eye-opening anecdotal conversations I've had with some people who have voted for Trump in my hometown is I do think one people, even people who did vote for Trump, recognize about Donald Trump is that he is not a uniter. Yes. And I think that one of Biden's strengths is that I do think Biden is running as a uniter, maybe with a little bit more of an edge than Hillary did in 2016. But I think that's that's still his general pitch. And I think maybe doubling down on that with Booker would be a smart move. Yeah. And, you know, he is, like you said, he's a prominent African-American with no record as a prosecutor or police officer, though he did personally patrol the streets of Newark until 4 a.m. sometimes while he was mayor because he wanted to make sure that the city was safe, which is such that's like the most Cory Booker sentence I've ever like read. He, he also he also shoveled a dude's driveway once when he was there <laughs> and not not like it wasn't like his neighbor. It was literally like. Someone on Twitter was like, hey, I can't get out of my driveway. And he was like, well, where do you live? And then he drove <laughs> to, to the guy's house and shuffled his driveway. Yeah. I um, mean, like, at the very least, right? It's like he could just I just met Cory Booker going around the country doing good deeds. Right, right. Well, there's there's your campaign tour. Yeah. And I think all of this lets Booker thread the needle that Biden needs to thread and I think he has the opportunity to thread, but I think it's a hard needle to thread where it's like you need to understand and want change in a broken system, you know, when it comes to like policing and race in America. But you also don't want to alienate half of the country. So you have to kind of get in there and do it yourself until four in the morning. Yeah. 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 I like, I like Cory Booker as a pick. Cool. All right. That was my number four as well as your number five. Who's your number four? I went with Julian Castro, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and Mayor of San Antonio. I know that this is a double administration <laughs> pick, and I've been very adamant. About my the Levito law, Mike. <laughs> it is. Well, I, this is the exception that'll prove the rule. I picked him because, I probably because I think it was this past week, <laughs> some polls have come out that showed Biden's numbers like being pretty so-so with Latinos, especially in Florida, which... Again, I don't know if nominating a Mexican named Castro is going to help right. Biden with Florida Cubans, but, yeah. you know, it should boost him, I think, with Latinos who aren't recent immigrants, like Castro's family, uh, who've actually been in Texas since 1920, and who aren't native Spanish speakers, like Julian Castro is not. And I think, like, those bases in Arizona and even Texas, which is, you know, shaping up to be a closer election in Texas than it probably has been in a while, I think he's got a lot of appeal with those. I, I also think that Castro, he's, he's not he's not a Sanders or a Warren. Well, he did. He, well, first of all, Castro endorsed Elizabeth Warren in the primary. And I think that maybe he doesn't really speak to the Sanders base, 
but he probably i think speaks to like the warren base like people who are just so left of center but not gonna go full sanders like his mother was an active member of la raza unida which was this mexican-american basically leftist political party he supports medicare for all he supports universal pre-k and a pathway citizenship for legal immigrants maybe he's a hard sell to some centrists but i do think in general like he gives biden a little bit more of an edge that will help him maybe cut into disaffected progressives who maybe felt a little gypped out by sanders and warren not not winning Okay, I def I definitely don't have Castro on my list. Are you worried about his experience or youth being maybe just a little too small? Yeah, maybe may a little bit, but I also think his youth helps. But I, I think that's a completely valid. That's why he's only my number four too, right? Is that he is young and like honestly, if I could wave a magic wand, Julian Castro would be running for Senate in Texas right now. Like right. I think that's what. Yeah. I yeah. like I think his career move is he runs for Senate or he runs for governor. You know, I, I think that there, there's a path where it's like you get Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke as like the senators from Texas or something. So, yeah, it, it wouldn't be my first choice, but clearly wants to be president. You're okay. running the primary. I, and I, I think that demographically, I, I just think it, make, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, freshness, you know, used, used to be a thing back in the day in like the 1900s. They would pick like the obscure cabinet guys to. Yeah, and then they picked Sarah Palin, and we all learned our lesson. Well, yeah, but <laughs> see, that's the fallacy. Pick pick someone who's who's been inside the Beltway, you yeah. know? Yeah. So if you're not that worried about his age, Castro obviously ran against Biden in the primary, and Castro actually very deliberately attacked Biden on Biden's age. He, like, on stage said, I can't believe you're already forgetting things you said, like, two minutes ago. And I remember this was, like, a big slight is people thought the castro campaign went like slightly too far and a lot of people thought they didn't go far enough and this was a genuine thing to bring up i don't really know where i'm trying to go with this but castro and biden didn't really get along on the debate stage neither did harris and biden but do you think that matters i don't because of what you said about harris and biden okay okay and the reason why like karen bass got so much hype as a vp pick for biden was partly because there were a lot of like Biden donors and supporters who like still resented Harris for like how she went after him in the debates. Mm. But I, I think if she if she could get the nod, then then so could Castro. But Harris never endorsed anyone else. That, Harris that is, only endorsed Biden. That whereas is, Castro was one of the very few like candidates that drop out and then endorse someone else. Warren. Mike Pence endorsed Ted Cruz. <laughs> sure. I, Republicans I, and Democrats are different. They are. I don't know. I, I don't really think I don't really think it matters. Yeah. Him being a little too left leaning, I think, is also a problem. I think there's a way to get Latino voters and represent the Latino part of the party without Castro, which I'll get into. I, I suspect we will. Cool. All right. My number three pick, I went with Tammy Baldwin, senator from Wisconsin since 2013 and a congresswoman for 14 years prior. She's the first openly gay woman elected to Congress and the first openly gay woman elected to the Senate from a very important swing state. Wisconsin was the tipping point state in 2016. Trump won it by under 23,000 votes. And we finally have a Democratic governor there to at least temporarily fill that very valuable Senate seat. Yes, choosing Baldwin does risk that the crucial Senate seat falls into Republican hands later, but her progressive record would help Biden with both feminists and left-leaning, more Bernie-friendly skeptics. She kind of reminds me of Sherrod Brown in that way, where she is very much establishment, but also left of center. Mm -hmm. She has a progressive record on immigration and the economy. 
but she's she's actually currently in the Democratic Senate leadership. So she is very much an establishment person in a way that Bernie is not. I kind of think you just get the best of all worlds. You get a key swing state with very slim margins. You know, you may be convinced the progressives who are concerned about Biden that he's not so bad. You get a prominent female leader on the ticket, someone who does not have a record as a prosecutor, and she's clearly competent enough to become president. I think it looks really good on paper. I like it. So I, I was initially going to bring up the, the Senate seat thing, but I did forget that Wisconsin has a Democratic governor. So that's less of a concern. After all, we've talked about Scott Walker, too. Yeah, exactly. And it would, by the way, be a massive, just hypocritical move because I did pick Sherrod Brown as my number one pick last yeah. episode. Okay, so so l- let me throw this at you, though. Sure. Amy Klobuchar, initially considered a, a contender for the VP slot. Absolutely. So she's a moderate and she was a prosecutor, and her home state was the center of the George Floyd protests, which, you know, meant most, perhaps many or most of which were peaceful, but there was rioting in Minneapolis, and and there were lots of scenes of destruction that may have scared some voters. And granted, this choice would be made before this happens, but later there would be a police shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That would also lead to some some peaceful protests and some violent ones as well. Do you worry that and, and you know, I think it's pretty obvious that Amy Klobuchar wound up saying she would not accept the VP nomination. Yeah, she probably did that because she realized she wouldn't. And I think part of the reason was because she was from Minnesota and they didn't really want to highlight what yeah. was going on there. Do you worry about the same thing with Baldwin and Kenosha? I don't. Yeah. Like you said, Klobuchar is a prosecutor. She's more moderate than Baldwin. Baldwin is not a prosecutor. She was never a cop. I don't know. She was never ingrained in the criminal justice scene. She wasn't even like a mayor, right? <laughs> she was on the Madison Common Council and the Dane County Board of Supervisors. And then she was like a legislator uh, for the Wisconsin State Assembly. She's always been a legislator. She's never been like an executive. She's, and I think, you know, when in doubt, going with someone who's a legislator is good because they don't, they never had to be that, you know, the person with the buck stopped. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. Whereas like, Harris and Klobuchar didn't necessarily have that option. You have to make, when you're an executive, you have to make decisions. Being a legislator, you don't. <laughs> yeah, It's like yeah. the worst thing you did is you voted for something, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think Tammy Baldwin ever voted, to my knowledge, for like mass imprisonment of people in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, um, And I just knowing her more progressive record than Klobuchar helps. I, and I think Wisconsin is just a more important state than Minnesota. I, I know true. the Trump campaign is really trying to push Minnesota, and they did get closer than people have come in a while in 2016, but I would be surprised if Trump won Minnesota this round, whereas I would be less surprised if he won Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I get what you mean. You don't want to draw attention to the state, but like, who knows? I mean, next week, there could be a you know a mass shooting in California, too. It's like, yeah. so Kamala Harris is the senator from a state where there was a riot. There have been so many riots. California is a huge state. Arguably, there's more risk with her. <laughs> That's true. And it is just engulfed in flames right now, unfortunately. Right. right. Yeah, no, that, that that all makes sense, but it's it's something I thought about. I don't look at Tammy Baldwin and see, like, face of, like, criminal justice problems. Whereas yeah. you could kind of see that with Harris. Exactly. Yes, no, I, I, I would agree. Yes. Tammy Baldwin. There you go. All right. My number three was Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York, former representative. Let's sew up that white suburban female vote. My thinking here is that Gillibrand, I think, really speaks to the electorate that was activated by the Me Too movement. And she, she, was, she was a big voice in getting Al Franken to resign from the Senate. 
I don't pitching. think that gets her a lot of love, Mike. Not going to lie. Maybe, but I don't know. I, I think that she is literally the kind of person demographically that the Biden campaign is trying to win the most of, right? New like, Yorkers, yes. <laughs> not New Yorkers, no. White suburban women. Yeah. That is like their path back to the White House. And I think she speaks to that electorate a lot. And she also has some, some left-wing goals like paid family leave, federal jobs guarantee, abolishing ICE. It's like a very vocal anti-Trump voice. You know, she's maybe more of a figurehead than a actual sort of like uh, savvy operator. But there's, there's a rah-rah element to, to her that I think could help. I mean, she's definitely a very prominent voice on women's issues, which I think is mm-hmm. is a great thing to have. I don't know. I have a few things here. I agree. You want educated female voters. The suburbs are very important. Does Biden have a Me Too issue? And does this draw attention to it? That's a good question. Yeah, there you go. I'm slipping that in. Does choosing the woman who pushed out Al Franken for an inappropriate, and it was inappropriate, photo draw attention to the fact that Biden actually has multiple accusations Nothing confirmed, but of, you know, also perhaps inappropriate touching. I think some people may argue that actually Biden has done worse things. Yes, well, people certainly would argue that. There there have been allegations. Yeah, maybe you do run that risk, but honestly, like, those accusations, I don't know that they really stuck, honestly, in the primary. And I think that if, if there are people who are concerned about that, I think maybe even putting Gillibrand on the ticket kind of helps where it's like, hey, we know this guy isn't perfect, but we're we're, we're going to have a voice in the administration who literally, you know, worked on pro bono cases defending abused women where we're going to have that kind of a voice in the White House. You actually convinced me. It's a way to say Biden is willing to learn the new social norms. You know, he's not a bad guy. He just he grew up in a different era. And now he's learning. Exactly. It's a nice way to put that that makes like old suburban guys kind of feel better. It's like, oh, I'm not a bad person. I just grew up in a, uh, <laughs> exactly. I don't know, you know. My second thing with Jill Brand is I do kind of think there's nothing to win with her. Suburban women are important, but like uh, the people she speaks to, I think are kind of already with Biden. And she's really, and I don't just mean this because Jill Brand's literally sitting in the same Senate seat. She's Hillary Clinton 2.0. Hillary Clinton's probably more astute and a more savvy operator something you've dinged Gillibrand on. <laughs> what what does Gillibrand give you that Hillary Clinton couldn't get? Well, she doesn't have Benghazi and Whitewater hanging out okay. I guess. Okay. I, don't, I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I think that I think that's a fair point. I'm not going to I won't contest that too much. But I, she does have experience. I, I don't know if this is really applicable anymore. She does have experience like winning redder areas. She unseated yeah. a Republican in her first congressional bid and was actually like a blue dog Democrat. I don't know if she would identify that way anymore. But no, she's now like one of the most liberal members of the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. But I, I think those are all valid concerns that you that you voiced. All right. Those are our number threes. Two white women. Great. Great. <laughs> all right. My number two, I went with Tammy Duckworth senator from illinois female war veteran and double amputee really just an all-around woman of first she's the first thai american woman and the first woman with a disability to be elected to congress she's the first senator to give birth while in office she's just kind of an all-around badass actually her ancestors have served in every major american war since the revolutionary war she followed in their footsteps flying helicopters for the army in the iraq war where she became the first american female double amputee in the war After a failed run for Congress in 2006, where she just narrowly lost, she went on to become Illinois' Department of Veterans Affairs Director, 
And then she was nominated by President Obama to serve in a high-level U.S. Veterans Affairs Office. She resigned to run for Congress again in 2012, where she won. And then she ran for the Senate against Mark Kirk in 2016, which she won as well after he made an offensive comment against her heritage. In the Senate the last few years, she and Harris would have joined the Senate at the same time. She's kind of kept her head down more than Harris, doing just like kind of solid work on veterans issues, as well as, you know, giving birth. And she got the Senate to pass a rule allowing her to bring her baby on the Senate floor during votes. What with Trump's recent alleged comments against veterans, too, I think her solid military background and years of advocating for veterans might be a thing you want to keep focus on the president with. And I just think it's hard to target her. I think it's hard to target a woman of color who lost two limbs in a war and is a veteran and has a child. And I just think her story in general just resonates with a lot of the same people you said Biden and Democrats in general wanting to target, you know, working mothers, especially since she's taken to homeschooling her children during the COVID-19 pandemic. She's also from the Midwest, albeit from Illinois, you know, not exactly a competitive hotbed, but hey, at least you keep that Midwestern Senate seat. And it's also reminiscent of Obama-Biden in 2008. She's in Obama's Senate seat. It's just uh, it's a fun switcheroo. These are it's all true. reasons why Tammy Duckworth is great. Yeah. So I, I, I chose Tammy Duckworth as my number one. My big thing with Tammy Duckworth is, is like biography. And you, you kind of talked about it, right? There was someone on Twitter, I forget who it was, but during the DNC, they were basically like, so the message of the Democrats basically is, is that Joe Biden had like everything taken away from him when his, his wife and his and his child died in a car crash and he gave us everything in return, right? Whereas mm. Donald Trump was given everything and he's only taken more. And I know she's like, she's technically not running against Trump. She's running against Pence. But it's just like, on, on the one hand, you have this double amputee, working mother, basically lifelong public servant. On the one hand, the daughter of an immigrant. On the other hand, like a daughter of the American Revolution right. running against a rich kid who's not done nothing but fail upwards in his life <laughs> and who is like a racist and a misogynist and has just been doing a very bad job being president. And I I just think it's a very powerful message. It's a very powerful story. You know, she's also sponsored progressive climate legislation. She's stridently pro-choice, pro-Obamacare. Uh, she supports comprehensive immigration reform. Her name kind of got out there when she was a congresswoman. She was like firmly interrogating this guy who won some like sweetheart federal contract for like he he owned a small service disabled veteran owned small business because he injured himself while playing for like an army football team. And she basically kind of went after him and was like, do you think this is fair that like I got shot down in Iraq and technically I am considered less disabled than you are like this whole thing. Mm. Also, guess who she beat in her race for Congress? which one joe walsh in, oh, for, in 2000 yeah in 2012 yeah. yeah and just imagine the campaign stop where she goes to her <laughs> district and she pulls up her old enemy joe walsh who's basically just like i was wrong vote for these guys yeah, yeah. i yeah. like her and i think she'd be a good choice <laughs> she's your number one she's my number two so I guess we agree on that. Do you want to talk about your number two and my number one? Because I want to contrast them after we sure. do that. So, so, so mine is Michelle Lujan Grisham, governor of New Mexico, former congresswoman herself. We've talked a bit about Biden's troubles with Latinos. Ostensibly, she she would help there. You know, it, this is also picking someone out from out west and Colorado, Nevada, obviously swing states, Arizona as well, and and Texas kind of sort of going in that direction. So it's a big community for him to try and target. She does have a health background, which is obviously very relevant nowadays. 
a really solid demographic choice. I think I chose her a second because I just think she's like a little less compelling than Tammy Duckworth. Mm. But still, I think a pretty solid choice. You you know, you have someone who's been both an executive and a legislator and also just like another like introduction possibility. Right. She doesn't have much of a big public profile and you can kind of control the message a little bit more with that. Yeah. So Lewin Grisham is my number one choice. So we did a little switch there. I mean, she was literally chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and the secretary of health for the state of New Mexico. Yeah, I, I do think Biden is on to something with choosing a Westerner. And I think New Mexico is a Western state that doesn't really get a lot of love in democratic politics, even though it's been the most consistently democratic of the prototypical Southwestern swing states. The only time it's really flipped was in 2004 as Bush won it. And if you're Biden, you know, you've been in Washington almost 50 years. I think choosing an outsider and a Latina governor is a really good call. I don't know. It it sort of depends on the theory of this election, which I guess we can get into a bit later. I will admit that I'm sort of of the mind that if you've won Arizona, you already won Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty hard to win Arizona and not have already won Wisconsin um, and Michigan, just because I don't see what would have gone so weird there. I agree. But I do think Lewin Grisham is also worth it for her character as well. As director of the New Mexico Department of Aging in the 90s, she went undercover to a nursing home to investigate complaints. Her family history is also rife with health tragedies. She had a sister die of a brain tumor, and her husband actually died of a brain aneurysm. I don't know. There's something this year where I think governors are getting a lot of love. Uh, Just because they're on the front lines of the pandemic, they're actually dealing with it and seeing the death tolls pile up. And it's like, you know, people were talking about Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer as a running mate for Biden. She was obviously on the short list. But Lewin Grisham has federal experience in a way that Whitmer doesn't. She's been around a little longer. I, I think it's important to be representative of the Democratic Party if you're Biden. And I think having two white people on the ticket is not that. I think the way Biden wins this election is if he keeps the focus on health. I think getting lost in very important issues on policing and like criminal justice at least puts the ball back in Trump's court. But I think if Biden can push the fact that this is a crisis that Trump has bungled, I think that's how he wins. And I think keeping the focus on health is how Democrats won in the 2018 midterms. And it's absolutely how they can win this time. I'll start. I'll start there. That's why I think Lewin Grisham is better than Duckworth. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think it's just a difference in like preference. I, I think that the story is great with Duckworth. Yeah, yeah, and I think she's. She is harder to target. I think Trump would struggle to say the racist stuff he said about Harris (laughs) against Duckworth, because I think, I don't know, America has like a very sometimes unhealthy love for like the military. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And she's also just like impossible to swift boat, right? It's like she's like living proof that she was, in fact, in a war and got shot at, right? Right. I and maybe maybe I maybe I just have military brain and like maybe I'm looking at from the perspective of like people I know in the military. But it's I just feel like this idea of, you know, you've got Tammy Duckworth and she's facing down two guys who have not served a day in the military. In fact, one of them was basically a draft dodger, arguably, um, and who have done nothing but screw up the country for the past four years. Meanwhile, she like, you know, has given basically every moment of her adult life to it. That that to me is just more compelling than Luan Grisham, who I think is very credentialed and experienced and, and perfectly valid choice. Yeah, I agree with all that. And there's been if we want to talk about recent polls, Biden's doing very well with veterans, actually, mm-hmm. better than Democrats usually do. They, of course, the military went for Trump by a pretty strong margin in 2016. 
and and I think just Trump's utter disrespect for like military procedure helps. Mm-hmm. And at, at the end of the day, the military is like an institution and Trump hates institutions and he wants yes. to stop them and change them and break them. And I think the military like resists change to its detriment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they just seem very, we need $600 billion every year for every year forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And we don't do things differently, which isn't always good, but I think it makes them very resistant to a Trump-like person. Yeah. Well, and you've seen it, right? There have been like literal retired military, like high military personnel who are traditionally Republicans who have endorsed Joe Biden. Yeah. And I, I think that that does highlight an interesting split in the Republican Party. I, I do think that there's a segment of the Republican Party who really, really resent, like a lot of people really, really resent George W. Bush and the Bush administration mm. and basically the, the the two wars they got us into. And and I, I, I don't, for actually for those people, I don't think the endorsement of the military is compelling. But I think for like, maybe people like John Kasich, it actually is pretty compelling. Yeah. And if you want to s- sort of like sway the John Kasich types of the world, I think that's not a bad, it's not a bad group to target. I agree. I, I think... I think uh, it was really neck and neck for me between mm. Lou and Grisham and Duckworth. They're both just so strong. And I think what I kept coming back to and why I ultimately picked Lou and Grisham first is at the end of the day, this is the coronavirus election. Mm. It's not the military role of the military election. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, what happened this year? It was the coronavirus. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think she just speaks to healthcare and kind of like a Democratic Party prepared to take on that on the state level, just slightly better than Duckworth does, just because she's been in health. She's been a governor. She, you know, she's been on the front lines dealing with this crisis in a way that people and senators in Washington haven't. Yeah, that makes total sense. Both great, though. Both great. Yeah. OK, those are our Democratic picks. Any trends there mostly women we didn't actually deviate that much no booker and castro i think are only two only one governor and one ex-governor though why do we have so many insider picks with you know almost half a century washington insider joe biden (laughs) i don't know i couldn't really find a governor i wanted to take out of their state (laughs) i didn't want to take gretchen whitmer out of michigan i didn't want to take tony evers out of wisconsin i didn't want to take tom wolf out of pennsylvania yeah, I, I was trying to avoid the mistake of the Obama administration where it's like, let's take every prominent Democrat at the state level and put them in <laughs> yeah. a federal position. And then you just end up, you know, kind of screwing up the state Democratic Party's plans. Right. I don't know. It's a rule we kind of keep coming back to on the show. When in doubt, go with a senator. Yeah. If you find a governor, they have to be pretty damn good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like Whitmer and the Evers, they're too new. I don't want an Agnew or Palin problem where we've only right, had yeah. two years. Yeah. A lot of 2020 candidates in our picks, too. What about that? A lot of people who ran against Biden. I mean, I think part of it's just like a numbers game. Like, right. That's my, like, that's my thought is like, who's left in the Democratic Party that didn't run for president? Yeah, I, I think that. And I also think like, like these people saw lanes for a reason. And I think for a lot of them, especially Cory Booker, their campaigns ended up becoming auditions for the vice presidency. Oh, oh, very good. I like that. As for who Biden actually considered, Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin, California Representative and Congressional Black Caucus Chair Karen Bass, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, Florida Representative Val Demings, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth, New Hampshire Senator Maggie Hassan, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lewin Grisham, Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo, 
And Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and New Hampshire Senator Gene Shaheen both were approached but declined to be vetted. And of course, the four finalists were former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and of course, California Senator Kamala Harris. All right, that's Joe Biden. Let's quickly talk about what I'm sure will be a very interesting. <laughs> Trump wants to dump Pence. He hates Pence. He wants a new one. You want to kick us off, Mike, with your number two for who Trump should pick? Sure. So I went with Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, and of note, the only black Republican in the Senate. Trump loves to dog whistle and be racist, and Trump supporters love to give racist answers to polling questions. But those same polls show that people do not like how Trump handles race relations, and his handling of the George Floyd protests was like almost impressively tone deaf, really. Mm. And look, Trump's never going to win the black vote, but why not try to chip away at the margins of a state like Michigan or Wisconsin, where the Dems need black voters to turn out and to win? Also, just like a way to get like wavering Trump supporters from 2016 to feel less racist. On like a less cynical note and less kind of tokenizing note, Tim Scott's a self-made man. He grew up in, he has like a working class kind of impoverished background who just like earnestly dislikes taxes and government spending and actually has bucked the Republicans on like race issues. Like there were two Trump appointed judges who he opposed. I think may have actually been the deciding vote on some of them because they've had bad records on race. Hmm. And he's like the American dream candidate, right? He's a picture of opportunity and like, if the Republicans were to, like, go with the optimistic bent, he's like a perfect candidate for them. You know, this guy did not need the government's help to become a success. Right. But at the same time, he's also taken very right wing positions on things like unions and abortion and immigration. And he, he was very much endorsed by the Tea Party when he first ran for Congress in 2010. So, yeah, I do think that, like, really, no matter the, the presidential candidate, I actually think Tim Scott's a pretty good choice for for vice president. Also, just like maybe good to have a guy who would tell Donald Trump, like, not to retweet a video of people chanting <laughs> white power. Like, that would probably help. Because as if every, anyone can control what Trump I was is tweeting. Say, apparently, everybody else surrounding him just is, is not powerless to do that. But may, maybe Tim Scott, maybe Tim Scott can. I don't know. Hey, buddy. Yeah. yeah. You may not <laughs> want to retweet that one. Yeah. I don't think Trump is. Well, I don't know. I don't want to know. I don't want to guess where Trump tweets from. My guess is he's not doing it in the middle of a conference. Eh. <laughs> yeah, I think Tim Scott would be like my number three pick for Trump. It, it does kind of reek of tokenism for sure. I definitely actually see Tim Scott as a vice presidential candidate in 2024, probably even a presidential candidate. I, I think choosing Scott is actually a very Trump thing to do. I, I think Trump kind of gets off on like african-americans who support him mm -hmm. um you know i i had the pleasure of watching the entire republican national convention <laughs> a few weeks ago it was interesting how it appeared that they rolled out almost every conservative african-american they could find mm -hmm. like they really went above and beyond in a way that the democrats didn't yeah and i just think that it's just a very trumpian thing to do right it's like trump you know, he has kind of like a weird posse of African-American advisors and like people around him that he just really likes to like have around and talk about. Like, you remember in the 2016 campaign, he was like at a rally and he was like, oh, look at my African-American over there. Yes. Like everyone was like, oh, my God, you can't <laughs> do that. It's like, I'm not racist. Look at all my black friends. Right. Mm hmm. I think he just likes sticking things to the Democrats. And I think that having Tim Scott, someone who, by the way, has proposed a criminal justice reform in the wake of the George Floyd killing, that the Democrats have like stopped. They voted it down and filibustered yeah. it. I think that's a really good move. 
It is, um, yeah. And he, he had, when it was kind of announced, he was like working on like the Republican criminal justice reform bill. He, I think he like tweeted this out, but his point was basically like, look, people are like calling me a token and blah. Like basically, people were saying these really horrible things to me. He was like, but like, wouldn't you rather like me be writing this bill? Like, he wasn't pretending racism didn't exist. He's like, look, like, I've been like pulled over unnecessarily. Unlike Capitol Hill, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, he's he's very open about, even though he is a conservative, he's, like, very open about, like, what he views as, you know, the struggles of the black community. And he, his, his point is basically, like, you know, at least there's a guy like me inside to kind of, like, you know, guide the Republicans on, the, on these issues. And I think that would be compelling for a lot of voters. Yeah, I agree. I think he's a good choice. I think he's a very, I just think he's a very Trump choice. It almost makes more sense to me than Trump-Pence. To see Trump Scott this year after all that's happened this year. Yeah. And I don't know. My number two choice for Trump, I went with Susana Martinez. Here's a name that I kind of pulled out of a hat from four years ago. <laughs> She's the former governor of New Mexico. You know, for all of Trump's obsession with like the American Southwest and immigration and the border, he really has like zero ties to the area. And he isn't really bulging with like Southwestern aficionados on his team. But it's an area of the country that he performs in like much worse shape than other Republicans traditionally have, despite the fact that he may actually be performing slightly better with African-Americans and Latinos than other Republicans have. Um, it's all very interesting, right? And I think Martinez is like a way to show that off and put kind of a damper on Biden's, you know, so-called like Sunbelt strategy. I think it is an active problem for Biden that Latinos may be looking at Trump. And I actually think... I don't remember. It may have been Trump himself who was talking about this or one of his, you know, spawn. It's like the whole like the working class supports Trump message. Therefore, working class Latinos also support Trump kind of clicks with me. That actually kind of totally makes sense. Um, You know who doesn't like illegal immigrants, by the way? Legal immigrants. You know who can vote? Legal immigrants. You know who can't vote? Illegal immigrants. That's not what I heard. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I just think there's a lot of ways to kind of turn this race on Biden with Latinos. And I think Martinez, also in a very tokenizing way, is a way to do that. But she also can speak to border issues. She can speak to Trump's kind of signature is that he really wants a wall in the Southwest. He seems really obsessed with like three states, four states, the border down there. Here's one of them. Yeah, it is a little bit of like a left field pick just because she's been out of office for like two years. I think I think what you said makes a lot of sense. She she it definitely go a long way to activating the maybe if you have some Latinos who are on the fence as far as supporting Trump goes, it go a long way to activating them. And I, you know, in a way, I think her being like a, a governor who's out of office, I think maybe helps her with some people in the sense that it's mm-hmm. like. Well, you know, if I were governor, we wouldn't be shutting down your small business. Um, <laughs> yeah. She didn't actually have to do it. She can say exactly. what she wants. Yeah. 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 And and she'd be like, you know, if I were governor, this is how I would respond to the virus and, and things like that. Like, you can't really prove a negative, but I think that kind of helps her in, in a weird way. And and Democratic governors have there, there's a certain segment of the population who are probably voting for Trump already, but who have been very unhappy with the way Democratic governors have handled the pandemic. And I think, you know, you could turn her into their spokesperson, I guess. Yeah, she is definitely out of left field. There's something there. Yeah. All right. Bring us home with number one for Trump. I went with Nikki Haley, former U.N. ambassador and former governor of South Carolina. She's kind of the obvious pick. The name that always came up when 
they're talking about replacing Mike Pence, but she's obvious for a reason. She would probably help among women and among people who don't want to feel like racist. I wrote that again, didn't I? <laughs> but she's also like a prototypical 2020 Republican, somebody who made a lot of noise about how much they disliked Trump in the primary, but then fell in line once it helped their career. And I mean that kind of both facetiously and seriously, though, right? She served as ambassador to the UN. She was able to be the face of a lot of popular conservative foreign policy positions, like recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and, and going very hard after Iran, China, and North Korea, but while giving herself like enough distance from Trump, like just in case something really bad happened. Her opposition to the Muslim ban, decisions to remove the Confederate flag from the South Carolina capital, gives her some clout among moderates. And, you know, I think that if this is indeed the coronavirus election, if you're Trump, make it the China election. Make it the make it the we need to defeat China because they caused the virus and also they're bad in general. And who 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 was doing that in the UN? Well, it was it was Nikki Haley. And and that's why I think she'd be a good pick. Yeah, I also went with Nikki Haley. I do think she's sort of the obvious choice if you believe that Trump has a problem with women and some minority voters, which, uh, yeah, I, there have been like dozen, like literally hundreds of articles written about the Pence for Haley switch in 2020. I even wrote one probably two years ago on the Post Writer. I do wonder what her game is. There's something bigger at work here. You know, Nikki Haley who hasn't held an office for over a year, by the way. She left the Trump administration on kind of weirder terms than anyone else ever has. It's like, usually people, they're out the door, they're fired, or they just kind of become so annoyed that they eventually quit. And yet every single news outlet was talking about her 2020 vice presidential chances and her 2024 presidential aspirations. And then she gets top billing at the RNC above the sitting House minority leader over a year and a half since she left her office. It's like if there was someone that trumped Trump was pushing Nikki Haley, like moving the chess pieces for Nikki Haley, you know? Yeah, they're they're, they're setting her up to run in 2024. Right. I think but who's it. they? I can't figure out who they is. I don't know that Trump wants her to run in 2024, but he seems to be going along with it. Yeah, I guess I don't know who they I don't know who they <laughs> who, are. It's either. a conspiracy. <laughs> What I think it is, is that Nikki Haley was already pretty popular before Donald Trump was president. And I think as a non-white woman was kind of viewed as as the future of the party. And I think her taking the Trump job also makes her it's convenient for 2024 because it's like, well, we, we liked her all along. You know, she, she has diversity to the party. But also she was able to work with this guy who was very popular among the party. She splits the difference between Trumpers and, and never Trumpers. I think there are probably like powerful forces in the Republican Party who think that that's what they're going to have to do in 2024, split that difference. Yeah. Something just feels like slightly wrong with a Trump Haley ticket. I, mean, I can't like quite put my finger on it, but it's like I almost just can't picture it. Like I can't see it happening no matter how good it looks on paper. Like, I think I think Trump has no loyalty to Pence. I think if Trump genuinely believed that he could win this election if he drumped Pence for Haley, he would absolutely have done it. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that that didn't happen means something. Maybe she really was like, no, maybe he didn't like it. I don't know. Something just feels like I can't picture it. I, something feels a little off. Well, my my big conspiracy theory is the reason he made her ambassador to the UN was because then that would make her less likely to challenge him in 2020. Ooh, see, there is a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It is maybe a little bit of an uneasy marriage. But what I think it is, is that like it's clearly someone who wants to and is capable of outshining Trump, whereas Pence is not. 
he wants to, but he's not capable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Those are our picks for Trump's VP switch, get rid of Pence move. We got women and minorities. There you go. Yeah. As for who Trump actually considered, you know, like we said, Nikki Haley was kind of constantly talked about and South Dakota Governor Christine Nome also got some press, but he stuck with Pence. There are a lot of people who thought like on the day of there was going to be the switch. There were like several journalists who made a prediction. It's like, this is exactly how it's going to happen is Haley is going to get announced on like day three. And they like wrote this article like on day two. Very odd. I think we've just been very bored with this election for a yeah. long time, <laughs> I think is what's happening. Yeah. All right, let's quickly do the speed round. Uh, are there any uh, any names you got, Mike? I mean, Democrats eternally Sherrod Brown. I think that if that's he can't... That's Mike. Exactly, yes. That's why I did not pick him. But I think all other things being equal would, would still be a compelling choice. Would you really want two white dudes on the ticket? Maybe not, but he makes more sense for Hillary than he does for Biden. But yes. he would not be my number one pick, but he'd be up there. So I wrote down Val Demings... You know, Florida Congresswoman seems appealing. I just think she has too little experience. I agree. And she was a cop. Mm -hmm. Probably not great. And then I do want to talk about Warren, not because I think she's a good pick. I actually think very much the opposite. But I got a lot of shit because I wrote many articles on the site for months explaining that she's not a good pick. So let's let's quickly talk about Warren. Why is Warren such a bad pick, Mike? Well, I think she's too close in age to Biden. I think Mm -hmm. you need a younger person. I think that unlike Sanders supporters, Warren supporters are already voting for Biden. Yeah, that's like literally I, what I wrote down is you're not winning anyone you don't already have. Yeah, yeah. You also lose a Senate seat with Warren. True, true. Because the governor is a Republican, Charlie mm-hmm. Baker. It would be hilarious if he appointed them. I, I wouldn't put it past him to appoint a Democrat. He wouldn't, yeah. but I wouldn't put it past him. And, and I know the legislature has like legislation it's sitting on that would force him to pick a Democrat. But still, it's still giving a governor choice of that Democrat, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Any other Democrats? No, nah, not really. What about Republicans? You Republic- can get real weird. Yeah, you can. Um, Donald Trump Jr. No. Yeah, I thought um, about it. I actually did think about it. So Christy Nome, the reason I think she would be a decent pick. I think South Dakota did like some of the least shutting down in the country. They had uh, the whole meatpacker problem, didn't they? Maybe. But so I, I think Christy Nome does two things. Is one, I think it's like, I'm the governor who didn't shut things down in my state's doing fine. It, it helps when it's South. <laughs> Sorry, can I quote this article from April 15th? Sure. CBS News. South Dakota meatpacking plant becomes nation's top coronavirus hotspot as governor shuns stay-at-home order. Well, I drop a mic right there. <laughs> hey, I'm not saying I agree with the logic. <laughs> I'm just saying what, like, literally there was an article in National Review, because I hate myself, I check National Review sometimes, talking about how she did it right. So there's that also, and this is, like, very, very stupid. But after, you know, a part of the, the protest that sprung up across the nation... There was lots of people tearing down statues of, of figures who, who who were considered racist and sometimes figures who were not actually racist. And somebody tweeted, you know, before jokingly tweeted, before you know it, like Antifa is going like, to, you know, hijack an Apache helicopter and shoot missiles at, at Mount Rushmore. And then Christy Nome retweeted it saying, not on my watch, <laughs> which is like obviously a very stupid response to a stupid joke. But I think there is like an element of like, I'm defending Mount Rushmore from the leftists <laughs> that maybe plays in some places. I don't know. 
Sure. I don't know. Also for Trump, I wrote down just like Trump stooges, Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham, Ron DeSantis. I think these are all people who wish they could be Donald Trump Jr. Did, They're going to be so disappointed when Trump endorses his son in 2024 instead of any of them, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think any of them are good picks. I mean, Ron DeSantis would require Trump to quote unquote move states again. That's true. <laughs> okay. In conclusion, Mike, if you could change the running mate for the two candidates, you know, we don't know how this ends yet. What do you think? Would you? Would you have done it differently? So I wouldn't do it for Trump because it's always a bad look when a sitting president replaces their vice president, which is why it hasn't happened since FDR. It would be especially bad now if like the world literally on fire. It would look a lot like he's panicking. And the chair of your coronavirus task force. Yes. yes and exactly. actually half of your cabinet has already quit in your first year in office. Yeah. Probably not a good no. Biden, on the other hand, you know, when when Kamala was announced, she was she would not be my first pick where she eligible for us to pick her. That being said, I do think it makes sense. She's got a brand. She's got a base. I think in a vacuum, Tammy Duckworth would definitely be my number one pick. Mm. I think given the events of the past few months, I don't think he had any choice but to pick Kamala Harris. Okay. I, I agree with Pence, and I think just in general, our 2016 episodes kind of gave me a much deeper appreciation for how good of a choice Pence was. Mm. And yeah, I think dropping Pence as the incumbent is just a bad look. I'm going to stick with what we've been writing and stuck by for months. I think Harris is probably Biden's best choice. And I think Biden knows that, you know, at the end of the day, you got to think of Biden as like the guy, he, he hates risk. He wants to play it as safe as possible, which I think is kind of admirable, given all that's going on in the world. And I think Harris was the safest choice. Sure, maybe that's not exciting. If Cortez Masto hadn't dropped out of the running, yeah, I probably would have picked her first. <laughs> Just because she's from a swing state, you know, it's, it's at yeah. least something. Harris is a great pick for Biden, I think. Do you think either of these picks change the outcome? Do they actually matter? Probably not. Okay. I, I kind of agree. Now, before we close out, let's mix it up just a little bit. What do you think is going to happen to both Pence and Harris after this? If they win or not, let's start with Pence. Does he win? Ah, putting me on the spot. If I were a betting man, I would bet on Joe Biden to win the election, which means I would bet on Kamala Harris to win the vice presidential race. Okay. What happens to Pence if he loses? If he loses, he writes a book. He visits Iowa and New Hampshire. He goes on some cable news shows. He becomes the face of the sort of like Christian response to like cancel culture and protests and that kind of thing. And he enters the 2024 Republican primary and he drops out after New Hampshire. Ouch. What happens if Trump and Pence do win this election? What happens to Pence? He runs in 2024 and drops out after New Hampshire. Really? Okay. So no matter what, you think we have not seen the end of him. And you think he runs and loses. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I actually think I agree with you. Yeah, I definitely think we haven't seen the end of him. I cannot imagine the Republicans nominating him, though. No, me neither. This is very odd. There there are too many other people they are excited by. Right. Pence isn't very exciting. And I think Republicans like blood. Pence doesn't have blood. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Take that as you will. Um, All right. What about Harris? So you think she does win? Yes. She becomes the first female vice president in history. Yes. What happens to her when she wins? She becomes the Republicans scapegoat her a lot. I think the Republicans focus on her a lot. And the the kind of basically intense scrutiny that Obama got, I think she will get. 
it could be kind of Hillary like where it's like they see yes. her as next in line. So they start yes. going after her early. And I, I think despite all the hullabaloo, I do think Joe Biden runs for election 2024. I think he probably wins. <laughs> I I don't know. Point is, I think Kamala Harris, one way or another, is going to be running for president again. <laughs> In like 2028. 20, At the latest. If okay. Joe Biden doesn't run again, people think Joe Biden may only serve one term. Right. Obviously, if that happens, Kamala Harris, I think, runs and wins the Democratic nomination in 2024. Do you think she could win that? After a one-term president, can she then win the presidency? Actually, if I were a betting man, I would bet that she loses. Okay. What happens if Harris loses this election? If she loses, well, she goes back to her seat in the Senate. She probably wins re-election in 2022. I, I bet she gets challenged pretty seriously in the primary, though. And I think she runs in 2024. Yeah, I think I agree. Okay, last but not least, I'm going to ask you a larger scale question. Since this is our last episode, and we've now gone through half a century of presidential elections and their vice presidential picks, this is the question we should ask before we started this whole show. <laughs> How much do vice presidential picks matter? I think that vice presidential picks are a very massive, high-risk, low-reward proposition. <laughs> I Like, I think of Sarah Palin... And, like, McCain was probably going to lose that election. Sarah Palin made it a certainty. And, you know, I, I, I almost feel a, a similar-ish way about, like, the McGovern campaign. Guy was most definitely going to lose that election. Having to replace Eagleton for sure did not help. Yeah. So I, do I think they have some effect? Yes. Do I think they are very often or perhaps ever a deciding factor in a presidential election? I do not. What about 2000? Well, that, that's a good point, yeah. Maybe if it's very, very close, it has some kind of effect, but I don't know. I don't think people were like, you know, I really like Dick Cheney more than Joe Lieberman, ergo, yeah. I'm going to vote for Bush. Maybe if Al Gore picks someone more exciting than Joe Lieberman, that changes things. Or Bob Graham, for example. Well, yes, that's a good point. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, don't know, I don't know that anyone could have predicted that Bush would win Florida by like 97 votes, but... I think I generally agree. I think electorally... Vice presidents only really matter on the margin. And we talk about that a lot. I think as we've gotten closer to the present, we've avoided state picks more and more as we've mm -hmm. gone for more message picks. And I think that's where vice presidents and vice presidential picks matter is I think they're a way for a candidate to show who they are. It matters who you are if you're running for president and it matters who you choose to surround yourself with, right? Mm -hmm. So when Barack Obama chose Joe Biden, that was showing people who Obama was. He wasn't this you know, radical guy. He was someone who wanted to work, you know, with a guy that everyone liked, right? And I, I mean, you could kind of do this with all of them, right? It's like George W. Bush just wanted to pick his friend, Dick Cheney, it seemed like. And I think Trump had insecurities. And I think that's why he picked Pence, because he wanted to appeal to, you know, this Christian right part of the party. And I think Hillary Clinton wanted to play it safe. So she picked him. I think you could play this game over and over with kind of every pick is picks matter because they show who the nominee is. And Biden picking Harris matters because they show that he's willing to embrace, you know, a new version of the party and a new wave of people. You know, it, it is a very important step in defining the message and vision of a campaign. It's like the it, first decision you make as the nominee, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, it's a good point. Yeah, I think it ultimately ends up saying a lot more about the presidential candidate than it does the vice presidential candidate. All right. Well, that is our show. 
You can find us everywhere that podcasts are found, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can find all of our works on thepostwriter.com, including our running mates portal for all vice presidency-related content. May not be a lot for a few more years here, but we'll see. In the meantime, I have been Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And this was our last episode. And it's been a real pleasure diving through the last 50 years of American presidential and vice presidential history with you. You know, it takes a lot to make this show. Michael and I do hours of research. You know, between the two of us, we've now researched and proposed 232 running mates for our presidential nominees. We then, of course, reach a ton of different conclusions, and then we have to poke each other on the air to come up with a coherent conclusion on the running mates each episode. Not to mention all the editing and background work to push out the episodes. But, you know, this has been a passion project for us, so we hope you've gotten something out of it listening. Any closing thoughts, Mike? No, this was a lot of fun, and I'm I'm, I'm bummed. we got to find something else to do. we right. we got to... We, a little got, less research next time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yes, yes. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of fucking work. Think of all um, the names we've learned, though. Yeah, dude, it's it's been very enlightening. Um, <laughs> Remember Kit Bond? Terry Sanford. I found like my new favorite guy in Terry Sanford. Graham Crackers. Graham Crackers. Connolly. John Connolly. Oh. That that one time where we picked John Glenn for like five episodes straight. <laughs> hey, it was a good pick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you can always drop us a line uh, at thepostwriter.com. You can catch us there in the meantime. You know, who knows what the future holds in terms of this election, the world at large, and this show. Maybe we'll come back in 2024, catch up on the running mates four years from now. But in the meantime, thanks for listening, and we hope you have enjoyed it.